Again, that's out of Acts chapter 4, verses 5 through 12. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, they were inquired, By what power or by what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed? Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, who was crucified, whom by God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone, and there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by, by which you must be saved. Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 through 14. Just two verses this morning. I'll be reading through the NASB. It's uh, page 965 of the Black Pew Bible. I ask that each one of you, hopefully you have that in front of you. That's in the ESV, so the translation will be a little bit different. But Jesus says, Enter through the narrow gate. For the gate is wide, and the way is broad that leads to destruction. And there are many who enter through it, for the gate is small, and the way is narrow that leads to life, and there are very few who find it. A pastor, once preaching from this text, offered up this question to his congregation prior to him preaching it. And so I offer up this same question as well to you this morning. I hope you know I do it to you in love because I love each one of you. I do it to you out of solemnness. It's a plain question, but yet I ask that you don't be offended by its plainness. And I pray that you receive it, that you consider it this morning, that you reflect upon it. The question, do you believe that it is possible that you may go to hell? It is my desire and prayer today that as we go through the text, for those of you today who are sitting amongst us, for those who are listening via live stream or via podcast, that have not come all the way to Christ, who are listening because there's something that is drawing you here this morning, and certainly it is the Lord Jesus Christ, for you to come to a full knowledge and saving faith in Him. My message today, or rather Christ's message today, is a call to the half-hearted. It's a call to the self-righteous, the externalist, the almost Christian. It's for those today who are playing footsie with the Word of God, who have dipped their toe into the water and yet have, plunged, have not plunged headfirst into the saving faith of Jesus Christ. Some of you listening today may not even realize that you aren't saved or maybe that you have not grown up. Maybe that's you've grown up in church or around other Christians. You know just enough vocabulary to hang out with Christians, Christianese, if you will, and to make it sound like you're part of the Christian faith. It's to those who are committed their lives to human achievement in order to rise to heaven. It's to those who think that they can do some type of good in order to affect their relationship with God and in order to merit their salvation. It's to those whose religion is based on being good enough religious enough, doing good deeds through some religious act, some rite, or some ceremony. And my desire 
my heartfelt desires that you heed these words from the master that we take from the word of God and that you take them seriously and that you ponder upon them and that you reflect upon that, them and then you come to a saving faith and knowledge in the Lord Jesus Christ. So today I want to focus on one of the most shocking, one of the most exclusive statements that Jesus has ever said in the word of God. Christ, he holds no bars when it comes to drawing the eternal line in the sand. In these verses, in no certain terms, Jesus says that there are actually more people going to hell than there are heaven. This statement, it comes at the end of what we know as the Sermon on the Mount. We've been walking through this, Shane and Chris and Morgan have been walking through this verse by verse, line by line, through chapter 5, chapter 6, through chapter 7. We've been learning about it in small groups, so the context should be fresh this is why we do this. This is why we preach expositionally. This is why we preach verse by verse so we don't pull things out of context so it's clear to us what Jesus means to us this morning, what his words mean. And as Jesus draws an end to his sermon, he uses an illustration of the narrow and the broad road to teach that there are only two ways to live. You see, our judgments, which is what the chapter 7 is about, they teach that there are only two ways to live. Our judgments, they are always being tested by the choices we make in life. And we must look to see where these two roads lead. You see, it's decision time. As one writer put it, he says, it's make up your mind time upon the mountain. This is Jesus' invitation. Jesus' whole sermon leads to these choices. This choice, actually. Jesus, he's uncovered the hypocrisy of the Jews of his time. The most religious group that has ever lived. As he's preached his words to the disciples and the onlookers overheard their hearts, they were pierced with words that cut them deep. Words that left them amazed. As verse 28 of chapter 7 says, When Jesus had finished these words, the crowds were amazed at his teaching. Jesus had been demonstrating and teaching them that true religion, well, it's not external, but yet it's internal. That the way the Jews had portrayed and the way that they had believed was the way that heaven was wrong. Their fasting, it was superficial. Their prayer, hypocritical. Their giving, in vain. Their religion, it was external. Their obedience, fake. Their judging of others, it was prideful. They were trying to earn their way to heaven. They see they had a zeal for God, but yet as Romans says, they lacked the very knowledge in what they needed for their salvation. They had played the game of church well. You see, no one could out-church the Pharisees. We think we play church well. They did it to the T. But Jesus, he pulls the rug out from under them when he told them that blessed are those who are poor in spirit. Blessed are those who are meek. Blessed are those who mourn over their sins. Blessed are those who thirst and hunger for righteousness. And if that wasn't enough, blessed are those who are persecuted. Jesus goes on. He says, then he, he adds this, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will not enter into the kingdom of heaven. Then Christ, he lays the hammer down when he says, you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is imperfect. You see, the very standard in which God measures each one of our lives is the very standard of God himself. His perfection, it's his holiness and with that, with those words, he leaves his crowd in utter astonishment and he brought his listeners to utter desperation. And so in this sermon, Christ essentially points out the insufficiency of the false religion. And then he confronts them with a choice. 
And considering where our choices ultimately lead is a principle that needs to inform our lives this morning. He's been talking about judgment upon this chapter and we're rightly to, how we're to rightly judge and now we are to put it to the test. The question, do you want to come to heaven? It's the greatest invitation that ever been laid out before mankind. It's the greatest invitation that has been extended to lost sinners to come to himself and to surrender their lives to him. And the same invitation, it goes out to you today. It is the invitation to come into his kingdom, to come to himself and come to an end of yourself so that you might begin your life in Christ. Jesus concludes his sermon with four warnings that are arranged in several paired contrasts. And it was a very common teaching in the day in, in, in Judaism, this paired contrast. And what he does is he contrasts two gates. He contrasts two builders, two houses, two foundations, if you will. And this morning, we're going to be dealing with the two gates. Shane and Phil will be dealing with the rest of it, but I want you to understand the context here. But what I want you to understand is, and what, you need, what is imperative of this text is, is that we're dealing with two gates, but yet above the gates are both marked heaven. Both gates point to the kingdom of God. They point to salvation. They point to eternal joy and bliss in heaven. Yet, neither say hell, but in fact, only one leads to heaven and only one leads to hell. And the choice is clear, and it's an absolute choice. Jesus, in fact, he commits the awful modern sin of narrow-mindedness. You see, Jesus is teaching. They wouldn't go over very well with the postmodern mindset of the, of the generation today. The postmodern mindset says there's no, ops, uh, there's no objective truth. You can't tell me who to worship. If I want to worship that chair, that's fine. That's good. That's going to get me to heaven. There's no objective truth out there. That's what the postmodern says. In fact, a recent 2020 Ligonier statement came out the other day as a poll. They take it every two years. When U.S. adults were confronted with the statement, quote, religious belief is a matter of personal opinion. It is not objective truth. 80% either agreed with that statement or weren't sure. You want to know where America's going? That's why it's going. But it's not just the postmodern secular world that believes this. In the same poll, 32% of evangelicals, evangelicals, people who profess to be Christ followers, say their religious beliefs are not objectively true, meaning they're subjective, meaning I, I'll take the Bible or I may not take the Bible, but yet I still call myself a Christian. And when evangelicals were faced with the statement, quote, God accepts the worship of all religions, including Christianity, including Judaism, and in Islam, Christians now, 62% agreed with that statement. Meaning the majority of churchgoers today believe there are other ways to heaven. They can think what they want, but Christ will not allow us comfortable tolerances when it comes to the path of heaven. They're wrong. You see, there's only one possibility and there are only two choices. Not many choices, just two. Two religions of the world. The religion of human effort and the religion of divine effort. And in fact, this is what the whole Sermon on the Mount has been about. It's a contrast between false religion and between true religion. It's a contrast between false worship and true worship. A divine religion and a man-made religion. A salvation earned or salvation granted. There is a way that is true and there is a way that is wrong. A way that has been set forth for us by God unto glory and a way marked out by Satan unto destruction. 
Look with me, if you will, this morning. I have three points this morning. That was by way of introduction. But look with me, Will, our first point of the day. And I want you to see here Christ's imperative. I want you to see the imperative or the command that Jesus says. Verse 13 of chapter 7. Jesus says, enter through the narrow gate. You see, verse 13 begins with a command. It's in the aorist imperative tense. It's a command. In fact, it's a strong command. It says, Jesus says, enter through the narrow gate. And I want you to look with me here. First, I want you to see the urgency of Christ's words. This isn't some suggestion of sort. This isn't just saying you come to the gate and you admire it and you look at its ornamental structure and its architectural and you gaze upon how beautiful this gate is. This is, in fact, a command that conveys a sense of urgency, a calling for an immediate effective action. You see, there's no time for delay, folks. Enter this gate now is what Jesus says. Don't admire the principles that Jesus taught in chapters 5 and chapter 6, but there were no chapters back then. But don't just admire them. You must do something. What Jesus is doing is, is he's, he's stating that there are strict requirements related to the internal life. Jesus says it's narrow. I want you to understand this morning that this gospel, this message is not a suggestion, but it's a command. The gospel is a command. And if you refuse this command, you are in fact refusing Christ and you are in disobedience to Christ's command. You are refusing His call to enter through the narrow gate and fail to heed to His command. It's the greatest sin that you will ever commit. It is the sin of unbelief. I want you to also know that those who don't enter through the narrow gate are then eternally barred from the kingdom of God. You see, you have to go beyond admiring the gospel. You have to go beyond just giving it lip service. You have to go beyond being fascinated with the words of Jesus Christ and admiring Him. You must, capital M-U-S-T, enter through the gate of salvation through faith in Christ. Note with me this morning the restrictedness of this gate. I want you to know that there aren't numerous ways to come to the kingdom of God. There isn't a ten-step plan in which we enter the gate. Christ simply says enter. You see, the Jews, they would have had you think otherwise. They would have had you think that there was, you could work your way to heaven, that if you follow this set of rules, in fact, we're going to add more rules to you, that you can work your way to heaven. Jesus, he confronts that false notion. He says that's wrong. You see, denominations today, they actually teach that you can be baptized in order to be saved. That your salvation comes through an act. They'll teach you that you can pray a simple prayer, that you can raise your hand, that you can walk an aisle. They teach, in, but yet there's no, there's no obedience to the Word of God. They teach an easy, easy believism, if you will. Catholics, they teach that you must have faith plus works, Christ plus something else. But Jesus doesn't say that there are five things you have to do or ten things you must do before you come into the kingdom. There's, in fact, only one thing that you must do to become a member of the kingdom of God, and that's enter through the narrow gate. And notice that you don't stumble upon the gate. You don't walk through it by happenstance or accident. The gate is narrow. In some versions of the Bible, yours may say straight. This gate is straight. And that doesn't mean uh, that, it's, that it's crooked. What it means in the Greek is, is that it's, it's, it's tight. It's re restrictive. That it's hemmed up on both sides. As if you're passing through a mountain and you're, you're struggling to get through that. You see, this, this, this gate is not big. 
it's hard to come through. It's hemmed in. Jesus putting strict requirements relating to eternal life. The way to heaven, Jesus says, is narrow, it's restrictive, it's hard to find, it's not easy. You see, it comes with difficulty. Not everyone's going to find this gate. There are going to be many who miss it. There are going to be many who aren't willing to go through the gate due to its restrictiveness. There are going to be many who say, I don't want to do it your way, Christ. I want to do it my way. I want to come in some back door. I don't want to look to your word for salvation. I'm going to, in fact, pull me up by my bootstraps and get to heaven. Jesus says, that's not going to happen. I want you to note the definite article there. He says, the narrow gate. He doesn't say a narrow gate, but it is the narrow gate. There is one gate. And in fact, this gate is Jesus Christ himself. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and that no one comes to the Father except through me. He says in John 10 that I am the door. You see, Jesus is the way of entry into his kingdom. And as Sammy read in Acts chapter 4, what Peter said in his sermon, he says that there is no other salvation in any other name. Thirdly, I want you to see that you're born on the outside. Entering through something presupposes that you are born outside of it. In this case, outside the kingdom of heaven. We're all born from our mother's womb. We are born wretched little sinners. And we grow up to be big, wretched sinners. If it wasn't for the fact of God's hand, His mercy not being upon us, we would be just like Pharaoh. We would be just like Hitler. We are wretched. We are at enmity with God. We are outside the kingdom of God. We're not born into it at all. Paul says we're in Adam. There's nothing that commends us to God outside the work of Jesus Christ. You see, being religious, it's not good enough. Coming to church, it's not good enough. Getting baptized, it's not good enough. Just because you walked the aisle one time or said a prayer one time doesn't mean you've entered to the narrow gate. Just because you were baptized or you grew up in your church your whole life, maybe you've not missed the doors open one time this morning it could still mean you haven't entered into the narrow gate. Being born in a Christian family isn't good enough. You see, God does not have grandchildren. He only has children. That's why Jesus says enter through the narrow gate. Fourthly, up under this first heading, notice the difficultness of entering this gate. Jesus says in Luke 13, 24, Strive to enter through the narrow gate, for many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. You see, the narrow door, it must be searched and found. And when it's found, it's not easy. It will require soul searching and it will require deep conviction. And Jesus will say in Luke 14, that You must count the cost before coming to me. You must count it. Is it something worth going after? You see, the struggle is fierce. And I'm one to sit here and tell you, I know. We have opposition after opposition. We're faced against Satan. Not only Satan, we're faced against the world. And not only the world, we're faced against our own selves, our sin nature. And it is an onslaught for the Christian. It's not easy. It's not an easy road. For pastors to stand up, and to say it's easy to come to Christ and it's easy to stand with Him and your life is going to be filled with joy. It's wrong. Look at the missionaries over there dying for Christ today in China, in Africa. And it's going to be here upon America as well. Get ready. I hope you've entered in through the narrow gate. 
Entering the narrow gate is nonetheless difficult because it costs in terms of our human pride. Because of the sinner's natural love for sin and because of the world's and Satan's opposition to truth, it costs you your life this morning. It requires repentance. It requires leaving behind the love of sin and the love of the world. It requires denying yourself, taking your cross, and following after Christ. And no, that's hard. It's not easy. It's hard to abandon your family if that's what's called for in order to serve Christ. It's not easy to hate yourself, to say no to your own self-admissions, your own dreams, your own hopes, your self-centeredness, and your self-control. It's hard to repent. Why? Because pride and sin and self-will is the truest expression of our fallen condition. Striving through the narrow gate goes against every bone in our body. It's not easy. It's the most unnatural thing for a person to do. To be a kingdom citizen, you must be willing to be squeezed, to agonize, to fight, to exert, to self-deny, to be watching and warring, to be willing to strip away all self-sufficiency, all self-righteousness, and you humble yourself and you come as a little child upon your knees, poor in spirit. You come mourning. It's the narrow gate by which you come at one at a time. You're going to have to break from the pact, even from your family, and you're going to have to come one at a time, and you're going to have to come to Jesus Christ. And note that it takes a final step of faith. It's not good enough to admire them. It's not good enough just to come up to the gate, to touch the gate. You must go through the narrow gate. It's a step of faith. Don't be like the person that Luke 13, 24 says, for many will seek to enter and will not be able. They were too late. Now is the time to enter the gate. Not later when the gate is closed and locked for good. Jesus, he calls for repentance at this very moment. He calls for your faith to be in him, in his life, in his death, and in his resurrection. And it's going to be the greatest decision that you ever make in your life to lay your sins at his feet. The question today is, have you entered through the gate? Have you answered the call of Jesus Christ to enter through the gate? If not, know that Christ isn't suggesting it. He's demanding it. Look at point two this with me, if you will. I want you to look at the hellbound gate. Jesus says, For the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction, and there are many who enter through it. I've taught my small group that for is a term of explanation. When we see that, Jesus is explaining something, the author is explaining something, and it introduces the divine logic for issuing such a restrictive and urgent command to enter. If there's a narrow gate, then there must be a wide gate which we enter, correct? In fact, Jesus says it's a wide gate that's sitting right next to the narrow gate. But these two gates, though they're sitting next to each other, they both lead in opposite directions. In opposite directions. One leads to heaven and one takes you directly to hell. But both marked are heaven. One takes you to the forgiveness of sins. The other takes you to the condemnation and damnation. One takes you into the loving arms of Jesus Christ. The other takes you into the wrathful vengeance of God our Father. If the narrow gate is Jesus and we enter that gate through faith in Jesus Christ and not on our own merit and accomplishments, then the wide gate must be something other than that. And I said earlier that there are only two religions in the world, one being divine effort, the other being human effort. And this second gate or wide gate is salvation by human effort alone. I want to remind you that Jesus is addressing this to the most religious generation that has ever lived in the face of the earth. The scribes and the Pharisees. Again, no one outchurched them. 
Look here with me, if you will, the unrestrictedness of the wide gate. Christ describes the second gate as wide. The wide gate seems more inviting than that of the narrow gate. Where the narrow gate is exclusive, the broad gate is non-exclusive. Come one, come all, the gate beckons. It's very inviting. It's very spacious. See, it's easy. It's attractive. It's large and it's easy to see. It's pleasing to the eyes. It's pleasing to the flesh. There are many, there are few rules and restrictions to this gate. In fact, the gate may be entered with no difficulty at all. It can be entered with a whole crowd, no self-denial, no repentance necessary, no surrendering to Christ, no persecution. You see, what this gate is is religion without regeneration. It's religion without the new birth. It's religion without saving faith, religion that talks about God and talks about Christ and talks about heaven, who talks about salvation, but the only problem is, is the gate doesn't deliver. In fact, it leads you right to hell. Proverbs 14, 12 says, there is a way that seems right to a man, but in the end is the way of death. It's a religion filled with ritualism, externalism, traditionalism all forms of self-righteousness. It's man's self-invented ways of pleasing or appeasing God or paying for admittance to heaven. What it's actually paying for is admittance to hell. These forms of self-righteousness are human contraptions for acquiring God's pardon. They are means by which the performer of them hopes to win God's favor. It's a wide gate filled with easy believism, saying, come as you are, stay as you are. It's a religion without repentance, religion without submitting to the lordship of Christ. It's a religion that says, I want all of Jesus has to offer in the grace department, yet I don't want anything to do with his obedience or being obedient to Christ. It's a religion without cross-bearing, a religion that's not dead to self, a religion without submission, without remission, a religion that calls nothing, nor requires anything. It's a religion that walks, that's, that walks an aisle, raises a hand, that signs a card, that look up, you're going to heaven. No, you're not. You're going to hell. It's a religion of half commitment. There are those who are deceived. They think they've entered into the way of salvation only to wake up to the flames of hell and God's eternal wrath. There are those entering through the wide gate. It's a gate filled with people who have given an intellectual assent to God, yet mistake that for a saving knowledge of the truth. You see, their minds are instructed just like the Jews. They knew it. They knew the Bible better than we did, but yet their hearts are not reached, nor their lives transformed. They are still worldly in their affections. There's no real subjection to God the Father, no holiness of walk with God, nor any fruit, which Phil will talk about next week. It's a gate filled with Nicodemuses. You see, upholding the doctrines of sovereignty of God divine predestination, the overruling providence of God and holding fast to the Word of God, but despite their accumulated knowledge, they remain spiritually ignorant of the fact they need new, to be born again. Unknown to Nicodemuses of the world, what they need is God Himself. Though leading in biblical knowledge, they remain ignorant of the most basic gospel truths, an outward religion, yet are without an inward reality. Phil's actually going to speak to this next week a little bit more. But I'm just going to give you a little preview of who these people are. If you just look down just a few verses below in verse 21 and 22, we see these people. He says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven. They speak of the language. They acknowledge the Lord and who He is. 
They've been to Bible studies. They've taught Sunday schools. In fact, some may have even pastored a church. They know the lingo and jargon, but yet they don't know the Lord. Verse 22 says, Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And in your name, did we not cast out demons? And in your name, did we not perform many miracles? You see, they're involved in all sorts of religious activities. They're so self-deceived and they've convinced themselves that what they're doing is right in the name of the Lord. But you see, it's not just the drunkard, nor is it the hypocrite, nor is it the fornicator, nor is it the one who's murderer, or as Psalm 1-6 says, the way of the wicked that enters into through the the wide gate. In fact, it's the self-deceived person here in verses 21 and 22 that say with their mouths, Lord, Lord, but their hearts are far away. As a boy who was young and who came to these verses, who thought he knew it, who thought he had it right with the Lord, when he reads these verses, this ought to drag us to our knees in repentance before the Lord and check our hearts, right? Notice where this gate leads you. He says here, it leads you to a broad way. This way has few rules, few restrictions, and few requirements. It plays footloose with the Word of God. It's coming on your terms, not Christ's terms. It's playing the game of church and being very good at it. The Broadway has room for diverse theology, room for tolerances, room for immorality, no curbs, no boundaries. There's no need to worry about the beatitude attitude of life. No need to be salt and light. No need to worry about internal issues in the conscience. No, it's an attitude of we're all happy on this broad road because we're religious and we're basically good. This way is broad for there are many people on it, but it also allows you, this is what the broad road does. It allows you to bring with you your lust. It allows you to bring your pride, your covetousness. It allows you to bring your self-righteousness and your self-will and your self-gratification. Pack it all on your backs, bring it all in suitcases, and walk down the broad road with everybody else. There are no boundaries. You see, you can have one foot in church and yet have the whole body out into the world. It's abroad because it allows you to carry with you the attitude that I can be a member of God's family, but yet I don't have to go to church and be in fellowship with God's people. We read that on our, our, um, our covenant this morning. We should be here on Sunday mornings. It's broad because it allows you to carry the sentiment that now that I'm a Christian, I can go away every weekend and yet leave God's people back here at church, yet not fulfilling the will of God in edifying the church and using the gifts of the church and using these spiritual gifts that God's given me. It's so broad because it allows the attitude that I can continue to look at porn and or I can cheat on my spouse, but I'm still a child of the kingdom. It allows the attitude that I can live like the world Monday through Saturday, but yet Sunday for an hour I can come in here and I'm still a Christian. It's so broad that you can live however you want to live. And if that's the life you want this morning, then that's where it's going to take you. And understand that it's going to take you to the pits of hell where Jesus says that those on the narrow road hunger and thirst for righteousness, those who choose the broad gate hunger and thirst for something else this morning. Notice where this broad way leads. Jesus says it leads to destruction. In the Greek, destruction means perishing. Utter ruin. It means everlasting judgment, everlasting punishment. This destruction, it points to the final day when the sentence will be executed upon all those who haven't placed their faith in Christ. And then they will be sentenced to hell forever, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, and where the worm will it never dies. It will be verse 23 coming to life when you say, I never knew you, when the Lord says this, I never knew you, depart from me, you workers of iniquity. I don't know about you. But that's words I don't want to hear. 
Jesus goes on to say, and there are many who enter through it. Just as very few enter through the narrow gate, many will enter through the wide gate and the broad way. Multitudes upon multitudes are attempting to combine both ways, serving two masters as Jesus has already spoken. The majority of people enter through this gate because it's smooth, it's easy, it's attractive. The multitudes include those who make a profession and claim to be saved, but yet their lives give no evidence that they are strangers and pilgrims here upon earth. Maybe this is you today. Maybe you've been brought here today by God's provision and appointment and you realize that you're on this broad path and it leads to destruction. Maybe you realize that you've been trying to exert your own way to heaven for all too long, trying to climb your, to heaven by your own good deeds and your own self-righteousness. And, and my, my, my prayer to you today is, is if God is speaking to your heart right now, that you enter through the narrow gate. Today is the day of salvation. See to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking to your heart today. I want you to see thirdly this morning, our final point of the day, I want you to see the gate of true salvation. This gate of true salvation. Jesus says for, in verse 14, for the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life and there are few who find it. Jesus talks about real salvation here. He talks about the opposite of what the wide gate and the broad path lead to. He talks about what genuine conversion and authentic salvation leads to. You see, this is why it's important. This is why the command to enter the, through the narrow gate is so important and it needs to be heeded. He says here, for the gate is small. This is true salvation. It means that that is narrow. It's tight. We talked about that. It's constricted. It's hard to find and you're going to have to search for it with all your heart. And it refers to the true teaching of Jesus Christ. Jesus, he commands us to enter through the narrow gate and what he's calling for is an unrivaled and absolute loyalty allegiance to him. It's not that you're adding Jesus to your life. It's the acceptance of those teachings of the truth, of duty, of happiness, which are unfolded by Christ and his word. To enter through the narrow gate, you must come to the place where you love Christ and you desire Christ. You set your heart, your love, and affections upon him and him alone. And I hope you've done that this morning. For Jesus says in Matthew chapter 12, verse 30, he says, He who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me, he scatters. And in no certain terms, Jesus says that there is no neutral position. You're either with Christ or you're outside of Christ. Luke 9, 23, one of my favorite verses if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, he must take up his cross daily, and he must follow me. You see, this is what it means, is that you abandon the broad way and the wide gate. You abandon any false teachings that teaches against Christ, and you follow his teaching. You leave yourself righteousness at the gate, and you strip yourself of any good thing, and you enter the narrow gate by his way. There must be a cleaving to his word, to his truth, his righteousness, and there must be a banding of, your, of yourself. You either live for yourself or you abandon all and you live for Christ. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 16, verse 25, For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. If you try to hang on to your own life, you're going to lose it eternally. But if you give your life to Christ supremely, you will have eternal life. Entering through the narrow gate is neither a simple thing nor easy. 
Luke 13, 24, like we talked about earlier, make every effort to enter through the narrow gate because many, I tell you, will try and enter and will not be able to. There's difficulties. There's a striving. And I, I, how do we strive? You say, well, Blake, how do you, how do you strive for these things? What, what does this look like, right? We strive by prayer. We strive by supplication. Diligently seeking deliverance for those things which could bar our, our way into entrance to hell. Or to heaven, rather. We turn to His Word. We trust His Word for authority. If you're entering into the kingdom of heaven, you must come to the end of yourself. And totally surrender your life to Him. Repent of your sin and turn from your sin. Notice where this gate leads you. Just as the wide gate led to a broad way, the small gate leads to a narrow way. The small gate doesn't lead to the broad path. If you're on the broad path today, it's almost certain that you have not come through the small gate. Look around you. Who's on the path with me? If it's a lot of people, you may want to check yourself this morning. If it's very few, it's a good indicator you're on the narrow way. This narrow path has carefully defined edges. It calls for us to take it step by step. And it's so narrow that it calls for us to trust in the one whom we are following, lest we risk walking right off the edge. It requires us to have faith in the one who's called us along this narrow path. This narrow path is the changed life that comes when you place your faith in Him. It leads to the pursuit of holiness and righteousness. It doesn't mean you stop sinning. But it does mean you despise your sin. You see, it doesn't mean perfection, but it means a new direction for your life. Paul says to Timothy in 2 Timothy 3.12 that all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Just desiring to live a godly life, you will be persecuted. It's not easy. Striving. Where this first path leads, the broad path leads to destruction and damnation. This narrow path leads to life. It may seem restricted and that it's holding you back, but all that it's holding you back from is that which will harm you. God knows in his infinite plan what he's doing here. That which will do destruction to you. How graceful and good a God is to make a narrow path that puts you in the very center of his goodness and his will for you. To lead you to the very green pastures that he talks about in Psalms and to lead you beside still waters. Praise God, it is a narrow path that keeps you away from the pollution of the world system. And it alone leads to life. To life. Think about that. If you aren't traveling this path, you don't have life. If you aren't on this path and you're just a mere walking zombie, you're an empty on the inside and there's no reality within the regarding of the new birth. You are but a mere shell of religion. You say, well, what is the new birth? I've never heard of this. It is the life of God and the soul of man. It is the eternal life. It is spiritual life. It is supernatural life. It is abundant life in mankind. It is how good it is to find your life in Christ. Christ says that I'm the way, the truth, and I am the life. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son does not have life, is what the Word says. You're just occupying space. You're just breathing the air that God has given you. You're dead in your sins and trespasses. Oh, you may look religious and you may sound religious, but you're dead on the inside. You need to be brought to life. You need to enter in through the small gate. And you need to travel down the narrow path in order that you may have life. It's the life of God to fill you and to flood you with His life. Dr. Stephen J. Lawson says this. He says, it's more than just paperwork in heaven. 
where your sins are pardoned. Glorious as that is. He says salvation is not merely getting man out of hell and into heaven, but it is getting God out of heaven and into man. That's what the new birth is about. It's becoming a new creature in Christ. The moment you come to faith in Christ is the moment you receive life. And that's the life Jesus is talking about. You want to live? You come to Christ. Notice at the end of verse 14, there are very few who find it. Sad truth. There are very few who find it. That that number, that poll number earlier speaks to this. Very few. This is out of those who are saying, Lord, Lord, who are prophesying, supposedly casting out demons. They look religious, but there's very few who find it. No one stumbles upon the gate. No one happens upon it. No one just searches and seeks the Lord. Just out of nowhere, it's a regeneration from the Spirit. We must seek it. We must find it. He is near. And they're just a few. You say, well, how can, I, how can I know I've entered through the narrow gate today? How can you know that you're on the narrow road that leads to life? Two ways this morning. Two ways, and we're, we're wrapping it up. Number one, if you're on the narrow road, then it is certain verification that you went through the narrow gate. Because you can't get on the narrow road except you enter through the narrow gate. The narrow gate is not just an outward morality, but it is a living your life for the glory of God and that you live it passionately for Him. You long to keep His Word, and you long to follow Christ and Christ alone. And number two, there's one other way, and we have gone over this, and it goes back to the beginning of when we started this Sermon on the Mount. If you look back at Matthew chapter 5, turn with me in your Bibles real quick, real quickly. Matthew chapter 5, and you'll see what accompanies truth-saving faith. If you want to examine your life today, and you want to see where you're at, this is just a recap of what we've gone over, but look here real quick. This morning, you need to absolutely know sure that you've been saved. Jesus says that this is what it looks like to come to the kingdom and be a kingdom citizen. True saving faith consists of being blessed are the poor in spirit and brokenhearted. You see, no one comes strutting through the narrow gate. All who enter through the narrow gate have come to recognize their own spiritual poverty. They've come to realize that they don't measure up to the holiness of God. In fact, they've fallen short. And have you come to this place in your life today? Have you confessed your sins to an almighty God? But you see that just the confession of sin is not enough. Everyone knows that they're a sinner in some way. I can go up to anybody on the street and, yeah, I'm a sinner. Jesus goes on and says they must be what? Verse 4, blessed are those who mourn over their sins. There must be godly sorrow that accompanies this. No one gets into the kingdom of heaven without feeling the weight of their own sins that crushes Christ on the cross. Jesus then moves on to say that those who are meek are kingdom citizens. Those who will come under the authority of the master. And you must realize that your life is not your life anymore. You must realize that you need to come under the sovereign lordship of Jesus Christ. He is the new master. And then finally, look here what he says. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. That is not your own. This is what it looks like to enter through the narrow gate and travel down the narrow road. First, you realize that you're a sinner. Then you weep and you mourn over your sins. You weep and you mourn over that I'm not like God. And then you surrender and you come up under the authority of Jesus Christ and you surrender all to Him. And then in verse 6, you hunger and thirst for that righteousness that is not your own. You hunger and thirst for the righteousness that is given to you, the very righteousness of God that is sent from heaven. Nothing in this world will satisfy. I must have the righteousness of Christ. 
That's what I must have today. I must have righteousness of Christ. And all of this, no, speaks to the cross. It all points to the cross. You say, but I am a sinner. You say that I have failed Christ. I am not on the narrow gate. I am in the broad way. And I am fully trumpeting and I am leading everybody down the pack. It looks to the cross. You say, how can I be made right with God? He says, look to the cross. Look to what Jesus did. You have nothing that merits you to salvation. You have nothing that merits you to God. In fact, the Jews back in the days, they had nothing that merited them to God. They could slaughter lamb after lamb after lamb on the Day of Atonement. The man was a butcher. And then every day they would slaughter. And guess what? They were no closer to God than they were after the first lamb that was slaughtered. And then the second lamb that was slaughtered. We have nothing that commends us to God. In fact, we are wretched sinners. But yet, Christ says, I will do that. God says, I'm going to send my son in the flesh, and I'm going to come, I'm going to be born of a virgin, and I'm going to live my life that is perfect. I'm going to live the life that you couldn't live. Perfection in which God requires the very standard in which God says, I'm going to measure you. And he says, I'm going to go to the cross, and I'm going to take that cruel beating, and I'm going to face the wrath of God, the propitiation for mankind, and I'm going to be hung upon a cruel cross, and I'm going to be spit upon, and I'm going to die for the sins of mankind. And he says, and on that third day, I'm going to rise from the dead. We serve a risen Savior. He shed his blood for us today. He shed his blood for you today. If you're on the narrow path or on the broad path, know that there is a way of salvation and Christ has accomplished it for you today. He made atonement for our sin and then he said, on that cross, tetelestai, it is finished. The atonement has been made. But we come to him for salvation. In summary this morning, the true way to God is narrow. It's difficult, it's demanding, and there's relatively few pilgrim travelers. In contrast, the false way is broad, it's easy, it's permissive, and many lost souls are traveling on it. The question today, and I do it out of a love for you, it's a heavy sermon. It's heavy, I know. You're like, man, Blake, calm down. But I love you. And I have to know that Christ had this in mind. It's a warning. It's an invitation to you to come to Him. My question today is, what road are you on today? If there's a question of that, then Jesus calls you to repentance. For some of you today, you stand at the very same intersection of life. For some of you listening today, there are only two gates, two paths set before you. It's a choice. It's a judgment call. You make that judgment call this morning. One is the way of self-righteousness, leads to destruction. One is the way of divine religion, divine effort by God himself, leads to eternal life. You must decide. Your dad can't decide. Your mom can't decide. Your brothers can't decide. If it was up to me, I'd save every one of you. But it ain't up to me. You have to make that decision for Christ. You say, well, what I must do to be saved? I've never heard this, Blake. I don't know. I, I, I find myself on the broad road. I find myself, yeah, that might be me. Jesus says, believe. He says, repent and believe. Believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the thing. What do you believe upon? What do you believe in? You believe in the rug? You believe in the church building? You believe in what? No, he says, believe upon me. Believe upon that gate, that narrow gate. He says, believe upon me and you will receive eternal life. 
And the question is, do you believe today? When the Bible says believe, it doesn't mean to give mental sin or certain things or intellectual knowledge. He means for you to entrust your whole life to the truths of the Bible and the truth of Christ Jesus. If you're a believer today, <clears throat> the application point just kind of flows throughout everything. The application for the non-believer is examine yourself. Are you on that broad path? you are, repent and believe in Him. But the application for us as believers today, I think, is just to examine ourselves. We examine ourselves with times of confession. We examine ourselves. Every time we come to the Word of God, we should examine ourselves. Does my life kind of line up with this? Does it line up with Jesus Christ? If what I've said today is disheartening, if what I've said is, man, I don't want to be that person. Examine yourself. Are you on that narrow path? You say, man, I've stepped off that narrow path. Yeah, I've not been doing the things that Christ has asked me to do. I've not been obedient. No, that doesn't save you. But yet maybe I'm not bearing the fruit that I should bear. I would say repent today. I'd say fall upon your knees. Confess your sins to Him. And He will embrace you in His loving arms. Let's examine our lives today. But know this. Christ is issuing an urgent plea to embrace Him before it's too late. For who knows the number of our days? May God enable us to choose life and not death. Let's look to Him in prayer this morning. Father, we thank You for the clarity of Your Word, how critical, how vital, how important it is. Nothing comes even close to the importance of this message. I pray that those who have heard this and it will here in the future will understand this clear decision and that there's just two possibilities. And by the work and wonder of your Holy Spirit, may you move on the hearts to drive them in the direction of the narrow gate, knowing that in the end, that narrowness explodes into the new heavens and the new earth with all its infinite breath, its height, its glory, its depth, its power, by your grace and by your power. Move on the hearts to those to come to the truth, to embrace the truth, and to enter into the kingdom and repentance, putting all your trust, their trust, in the wonderful work that Christ has done on the cross. We ask that in his name. Amen.